0: active skin repair with y'all i started using this product a few months ago with my family and it has replaced so many different products in my medicine cabinet we are always looking for more natural non-toxic solutions and active skin repair replaces neosporin and ointment um, and all kinds of things and it really can be used for so much it can be used for minor wounds cuts burns chafing rashes insect bites really any skin irritation i even have been using it for diaper rash and irritation recently and it's amazing and the great thing about it is that it is non-toxic it's antibiotic free um, and it doesn't sting so it's safe to use around the head the eyes the mouth and the ears and it really works so you can go to bldgactive.com and use the code taylor to save 10% off of your order and get free shipping. All right. Hi everyone, welcome. Today I am so excited I have Angela come joining me. Angela is the author of a book called Balanced and Barefoot, How Unrestricted Outdoor Play Makes for Strong, Confident, and Capable Children. And I actually read this book. I was just talking with Angela a little bit. I read this book a few years ago when my first child was a baby, and it really helped to kind of shape the way that I wanted to parent. Um, and so thank you, Angela, so much for being here. Would you mind just telling us a little bit more about yourself and what you do?
1: Yeah, of course. So I'm also a pediatric occupational therapist, and I i guess I worked in all different settings before um, being out in the woods with children. So um, a lot of my experience came from actually working in a sensory clinic, um, and I started to observe a lot of interesting sensory issues like um, children not liking wind in their face and you know, not wanting to get dirty. Number one issue was balance and you know more and more kids were um you know having trouble coordination falling out of their chairs in school and um so that really started to kind of wake me up of you know this you know how how do i treat that in a clinic setting inside and so that led me down this journey of starting outdoor programming um and it's funny because it was never my plan it was really just taking one step at a time Down this journey um, Mm -hmm. and actually having my own children. So, when I had my own um, two daughters, um, I noticed that a lot of my older daughter's friends needed occupational therapy. And I thought that was very interesting because I grew up in the early 80s and occupational therapy was pretty rare. But um, I just, a lot of her friends needed occupational therapy. And I thought that was fascinating. So, just kind of paid attention to all of this. At the same time, We live on 12 acres of woodland and I think we have about 50 acres of conservation surrounding us. So we really live in the boonies out here, Mm -hmm. but sometimes I take a shortcut to go through a neighborhood and I, one day it just dawned on me that I never saw children outdoors there. And I just, I was like, where are the children? Why, what is going on? And so I started with with nature classes and I um, ran, I ran my first one. And I had a parent come up to me and ask why the leaves change color to her son and to explain that to him. And I remember like fumbling and going, I think it has something to do with a pigment and the leaf, you know, trying to remember my science classes, yeah. but it really helped me to reflect on, you know, what is my background? I'm not, I'm not a teacher. I'm not an environmentalist or a naturalist. And really at the time, those were the people that were traditionally running nature programs. So I kept thinking, what does an OT have anything to do with the nature program? And that's when I realized that um, the true occupation of children, um, as we all know, is play. And I kept thinking about outdoor play and how um, it's really at risk right now. In fact, it's it's really at risk right now with the pandemic as well, but just in different ways. And so my whole mission became bringing back the occupation of outdoor play. Um, and really fighting for that occupation, and enriching that experience for children. So what we do is we provide um, what we call timbered programming, and it's all about play experiences. So it's a grand scale, totally immersive, um, child-directed uh, play opportunities for kids. So an example might be they um, might hear a puppet show of Three Little Pigs, and then um after the puppet show there would be bales of hay out in the woods already pre-staged there would be um a pile of big really big sticks and um piles of real bricks and then there might be wolf masks and wolf tails and so we would say now you have the opportunity to create your own little um, three little pig homes and so the adults actually step back and um and really take an, more of an observational role. And we are there for safety reasons, but for the most part, um, the, the children direct their own play experiences, initiate play and then execute those play schemes. And we allow for hours for that so they can dive deep into play. Um, and it's just incredibly therapeutic. The more I observe children out in the woods and compare that to you know, what I was seeing in a clinic setting or even um, in a classroom setting, we're able to work on things that is very hard to replicate in those settings, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, like social emotional skills and conflict resolution through play. Um, Also, um, even just higher level thinking skills, like being able to initiate a play idea and execute play is something that we're not allowing children enough opportunities to do. And so we've noticed that there's been a a huge um, struggle with that many children so that's what we do Um, and really what happened was going back um, I guess in time a little bit I started with summer camps because I had a friend tell me I think you would find more parents are interested in dropping their children off so and I said okay I'll do it for one summer and I took um, university OT students because I thought what a great environment for them to, to witness. And then um, after those three weeks of camp, I said, I'm all done. That was a lot of fun, but I had no idea what I was getting into. It's an incredible amount of work. And often therapists are used to working one-on-one with a child or a small group, not necessarily a larger group of children. So, but those OT students went back to the university and I had 15 volunteers for the next year. And then I had two teachers reach out. And that's when the program started to change to be more about experiences And every year I'd say, yes, I'll do it one more year. And um, (laughs) what happened was um, the the camps were filling so quick and there was an incredible demand. And then I had an OT and a physical therapist reach out and say, can we replicate your program? That's when we realized um, this didn't have anything to do with me. It was really a gift that I had to share. And so that's when we um, started licensing the program um and spreading this program to um different locations. Um, a year after that, I wrote why kids fidget and what we can do about it. And that was a message that clearly the world needed to hear. <laughs> and it was all about restricting kids' ability to move and play and how that's affecting development in the ways we never expected. And so that's how this program went all the way across the world to New Zealand, Australia. Um, and um the message spreaded really fast, and so that's how Bounce and Barefoot came about, and um, that's often what I talk about is the um, connections between outdoor play and um, development.
0: That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. So Timber Nook is your is the program, and is yes. that did you say that's all around the world? Pretty much, sure. or yeah. So it's in um, Australia and
1: uh, the UK. It's throughout Canada, and um, we have a lot of sites, obviously in the United States, because that's where it mm-hmm. started. It was in New Hampshire, um, but we're also now training schools to do Timber Nook, wow. and that happened a couple years ago. Yeah, which is really important. So it's bringing back outdoor play, but it's also connecting it to standards, so that it's not just about, you know, there's more to it than it's that it's just play or recess. It's actually a play experience that, um, like a giant ball run, for instance, in the woods or a chain reaction machine, there's so
0: much hands-on learning opportunities through
1: play for schools.
0: That's amazing. And I will, I will link Timbernook in the description, the podcast description, so everybody can find it. Can you talk a little bit more about why is it important that the play is outdoors. And what are the the big differences between outdoor play versus indoor play?
1: Yeah, so there's a a lot of differences. The first most obvious one is that when you're inside, you're often restricted on your ability to move. Um, And especially in classroom settings, you often want the children to be, um, you know, upright in an upright position sitting. And so they're often more sedentary, even if they're playing on the ground, they're still kind of more sedentary, they're not moving around as much. The key with outdoors is that, is the space. And so they have plenty of ability to move in all different directions. Um, One thing that I talk about often is that where kids are often restricted and they're often in this upright position and inside the inner ear are little hair cells and we need to move in rapid ways. So spinning in circles, going upside down, actually helps move the fluid back and forth in the inner ears and that develops what we call our vestibular sense and that sense is key to all the other senses it's the unifying sense and so that helps with what we call sensory integration that organization um, piece that is so fundamental for learning and then um, it supports so much so it supports um, the, eye move, the eyes to be able to move as a team, which is good for reading and writing. It helps with um, emotional regulation. So if you get really angry that you can naturally bring that back down again. Um, it turns the brain on to tune in um, and pay attention in the classroom. Um, and so that's why sometimes kids are fidgeting because they're moving, rocking their, you know, their body back and forth and they're stimulating that vestibular sense um, for the child. Um, to pay, pay attention in the classroom um, and it uh, helps with arousal level too so we often talk about kids being off the wall um, again if they get plenty of movement opportunities that helps to naturally ground them as well so the first thing it does is it helps them to move in all different ways the other thing to think about is the ground is uneven outside and um, whereas indoors, you don't have to necessarily think about it. So it's not gonna challenge your muscles and your senses that much. But when you're outdoors, you're constantly adjusting the small muscles in your ankles and your body and writing um, your, um, your balance reactions to that. So um, outdoors um, challenges the body in ways that you, you can't do indoors. The other thing is it's um, the stimuli outdoors is very calming and grounding. So um, right away, if you step outdoors, you're gonna have senses ignited that you will not have when you're inside. For instance, you'll feel the wind, right? You'll feel, you'll smell different smells out there. Um, even certain that smells of trees will reduce cortisol levels in the brain and they're very calming. Um, the, the lighting is different. The color scheme is different. Mm-hmm. And it could be cold. There's a lot happening. So you have more synapses firing in the brain when you step outdoors. That chance for sensory integration is going to be higher. Um, but the other thing is, you, um, in order for sensory integration to happen, you need to be in a calm but alert state. And so, again, you're in that calm state when you're outside, but you're also alert, right, because the ground is un- uneven. You might see an animal run by. Um, you're constantly scanning your environment. So we want to think about what percentage of time are children in an environment conducive to sensory integration and that organization of the brain, and then what percentage of time are they in an environment where it might be actually dysregulating or unorganizing to their brain? You know, maybe they're in a classroom where they're really close to other children and bumping into them, whereas outdoors you have more space, you can get away from other kids. Um, you're also going to have like the posters on the wall, the brightly colored items, um, the, the noise level and the acoustics in a room might be different. So really just taking a look at what kind of environment our kids are in much of their time.
0: Yeah, that is I'm fascinated by this information. And, you know, we're not talking specifically about sleep right now, but I am a sleep and well being specialist and I support families with sleep holistically. And this is one of the things that I ask parents about when, especially when it seems like maybe their child is a bit dysregulated or they are bouncing off the walls and things like that. Well, how much time are they getting outside to just play and roam and explore? Because being outside alone, um, not alone, but alone, just being outside can really help with sleep. And it helps to regulate the nervous system and all of these things, like you're saying. So, this really does relate to sleep as well.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. Actually, before you move on to the next topic, we mm-hmm. just had a provider mention that they had trouble sleeping last week because they actually didn't have Timbernook that week. Wow. <laughs> so, they were doing more paperwork. And she's
0: like, it's so weird. She was having trouble sleeping. Yeah. Being outside all the time. It's fascinating. Um, Can you, so your book is called Balanced and Barefoot. Why is the barefoot part so important?
1: That's a great question. Um, actually worked with a um, barefoot shoe company for a little bit. And they actually, they sent me images of what feet should look like, mm-hmm. which is funny because uh, we're, we weren't made to wear shoes. And so the shoes will kind of, um, they really should be wider than they are. The barefoot shoes are really wide so that the foot can um, spread out, which is interesting. And we shouldn't have as high of um, arches, but they did research on their barefoot shoes and compared it to um, people that wore typical shoes that confines the foot a little bit more. And they found that there's an increased uh, amount of foot strength and also ankle strength compared to um, wearing typical shoes. So it's just like everything, it's like, you know, trying not to restrict normal development as much as possible Um, there, you know, and going barefoot, you also get um, sensory feedback, but you also get deep pressure. um, So you can, which overrides that light touch sense that can feel aversive for some kids. So it actually helps to integrate that light touch and they start tolerating different textures on their feet. Um, it also helps with ankle strength. If you watch a child walk on a log, you'll see that they're, they're constantly making little adjustments in their ankles. Um, I see outdoor play in general as cross training. So every time a child plays outside, it's a little different and they're using different muscles. And so it's really good to develop the whole body. Um, a great example of that is actually going on monkey bars and comparing that to climbing a tree. So when you go on monkey bars and you do it over and over again, you start to get blisters, right, um, on the skin. And that's because certain parts of the hand are not being strengthened and certain parts of the skin are being strengthened. And so you get a break and blisters, but if you climb a tree, um, every time you're putting pressure on different parts of your hand and different parts of the muscles. So you're strengthening Mm -hmm. all of the skin and all of the hand muscles. And so you're less likely to get blisters when you climb a tree. So that's just one example of how Mm -hmm. to compare, you know, what outdoors offers.
0: That's so interesting. I haven't actually thought about that. Um, Do you know Katie Bowman? Yes. I feel like yeah. you, I feel like you would, I feel like you would love her. She has, so for anybody listening who wants to learn more about the benefits of being barefoot, um, Katie Bowman is an excellent resource on that. She has a podcast, I think it's called Nutritious Movement. Um, yes. And then she has some books as well, um, but she's great. And she talks about a lot of what you just mentioned too.
1: Yeah. Well, and that actually comes from her, that piece with the, the yeah. skin. Yeah. So that was, that's her thing. And the barefoot shoes,
0: she is a huge advocate for barefoot shoes as Mm -hmm. well. Yeah. So regarding shoes, you know, how do we balance with sometimes our, our kids, our babies just do need to wear shoes, whether they're going to, you know, a daycare that requires shoes, or we feel like maybe they're not in the safest, you know, maybe they're sidewalks and we don't want them to step on a nail or something that could hurt them. So do you think that the more minimalist shoes are okay? And how do we find more appropriate shoes
1: yeah i think there's a lot of companies that are trying to um, create shoes where they get more feedback and so looking into that a little bit i know merrill shoes does that um but i think just researching a little especially toddlers and babies i feel like that's a really critical time of development to try to do those um, more minimalist type shoes and then in the summer or like when it's warmer if they can go barefoot, I feel like it's so much better because then you get the tactile experience as well mm-hmm. combined with that. Um, but being obviously aware of safety. Like, so yeah. here at Timber Nook, we actually um, allow them to go barefoot. For the most part, we create what we call a yes environment. So we try to get rid of hazards as mm-hmm. much as possible. So like underground bees' nest, um, glass, you know, stuff that would make it unsafe um, poison ivy. So, you know, trying to create a yes environment at home as much as possible helps with that where they can go barefoot um, for a good portion of the day.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, When does, when do we start this? You know, when do, when do we start getting our kids outside more? Is this something that really doesn't happen until they're like walking and they're toddlers or is this beneficial for babies as well?
1: Yeah, this is really beneficial for babies as well. Um, just a couple of things about babies. One is we were talking about the vestibular sense, right? Um, that vestibular sense is fully functioning when children, babies are born, if they're full term. And so often if you think about it, they're often upside down in the womb. And as a mother mm-hmm. um, walks around, they're getting that fluid that moves back and forth. And so they've done research um, and looked at it. Actually, Zoe Malex, who's an OT um, that does a lot of research, she used to work for the um, Gene Ayers Clinic um, for sensory integration and was a researcher there, was telling me that they s- researched and looked at um, babies' nystigmas. So basically, when you spin a baby um, or a per- when you spin yourself, you can try this at home, you should have what we call nystigmas after. Your eyes should move back and forth vigorously and that means you have a healthy, vestibular sense. If there's no eye movement at all, it's usually dysfunction with the balance sense. If the eyes don't stop moving after a minute, then they have a very sensitive vestibular sense. So that's something that people can try out. Yeah, it has been in circles. Interesting. You usually do about 10 times to one direction to work on one in your ear, and then 10 times the other side to work on the other in your ear. Um, but they did it with babies and they found that the nystagmus was there and everything. It was fully functioning. However, if we take a baby and we keep them upright um, and we put them in containers, like, so for instance, they're in the car seat and then they're transferred to um, a, let's say stroller um, but you keep them constantly upright, then they're not getting that vestibular input they need. Again, they need to move in different directions for that fluid to move back and forth. Mm -hmm. And so that inner ear fluid can thicken and they can start to get ear infections. Um, They can start having trouble knowing where their body is in space um, right away. So we do want to allow children, babies to get in the anti-gravity position to challenge their, the muscles of the neck and to challenge the vestibular system as well. Um, So crawling on the dirt and, you know, carrying them in different ways are all really helpful Crawling is really great because um, remember we talked about the light touch can feel aversive for a lot of children. That deep pressure helps again to override that light touch sense and and to integrate that over time. So when they're crawling, they might be feeling dirt on their hands, but they're also getting that deep pressure as they crawl. And so that's going to help integrate um, that light touch right from an early age. Um, You do want to create a yes environment for babies. like So making sure that you know, animal, um, uh, waste, I guess is like out mm-hmm. of the way. Um, I think, you know, washing out for class, stuff like that, make sure they're not left alone. Um, but you can do like water play and stuff outside. If you have mud puddles, I actually think it's really good for babies to, and toddlers to be able to play near a mud puddle and the parent can just get down and sit beside them and just kind of observe their play, and you can bring items out there for them to experiment with. For instance, like um, like different scoops or a tea set, stainless steel tea set, and place it right near the mud puddle to see what they do with it. They start experimenting with pouring. Um, you know if. Uh, you have trucks and planks, they might start playing with that with the mud. So you can actually experiment with putting different types of items out there to start inspiring play from an early age too. That
0: sounds lovely. How, do you have any tips for parents who struggle with their own sensory issues and don't like messes and like, that's me. And so I love the idea of all of this outdoor play and messy play, but to actually do it, it's really hard for me. Do you have any tips about that?
1: Yeah, I think that it's really important to understand why, because once you understand why this is so critical, um, then then it's easier to overcome those um, dislikes and fears as well. Mm-hmm. But I also believe um, that it needs to be baby steps. So especially when it... When it comes to um, fear around letting kids play outside, um, especially alone when they get older, or with an other children and the adult not being there, um, I know for me and my own children, it took it took time for me to be okay with that. Just mm-hmm. because I think we were inundated with so much um, news and fear that you know kidnappings and all sorts of things, but the research is that it's safer than ever before outside.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so really, just you know taking baby steps and letting go of that fear and then doing the research so you know why this is important um so we're at the point where we're actually causing harm to development because we've overly restricted kids so i think that's very eye opening and once you know that it's hard
0: to go back to right. so but yeah baby steps are key <laughs> yeah for sure um so you talked a little bit about, you know, making a yes space for your baby so they can crawl around. And, um, but I did get a couple of questions from the community about what do you do if your baby is mouthing everything? Cause I know some parents have concerns about babies eating leaves or dirt, and is that really a bad thing or like, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Uh, that's a good question. Um, so I think it's, it's funny because I was at a new Timberneck site the other day and the baby was eating a stick. <laughs> the parents were totally not concerned the bark and, um, and I was joking with them because when I, we went to New Zealand and um, we had, there was a baby eating, um, it was like sheep poop.
0: Oh <laughs> and I was
1: like, oh, I just, I'm like, those oh. baby, baby's eating. She's like, it's <laughs> fine. Like, so I think it might be a cultural thing. Yeah. But, um, so I, I think it's really important because for them to like maybe chew on a stick, um, you know, rocks are different. You don't want a choking hazard, but mm-hmm. if they're chewing on sticks or, um, you know, have a little bit of leaves or dirt, I think that's actually, uh, very good for their immune system mm-hmm. and you just have to monitor it that they're not going to choke is really the the issue. Um, right. or if, like I'm, Yeah. Um, because that's how babies find out about the world is that they, they put everything in their mouth and that's how they learn what, what, what is this and they're processing that information. So I think we do need Mm -hmm. to allow that. And we want their immune systems up too. so dirt is is good.
0: <laughs> yeah. <Within> reason. <laughs> I agree. And my baby was crawling on the ground the other day at the park and, but there were acorns everywhere. So I was like, okay, maybe not here because these are choking hazards, but yeah, I mean, leaves and dirt, I don't have a problem with those. And this is again, why it's so important. Not again, I didn't say this yet, but, um, be CPR certified, you know, it's so important for parents to know what to do in the case of choking, because it could happen. It could happen to any, any baby, any child, any adult really. Um, and, you have to we have to allow our babies to have those experiences where they are bringing things to their mouth. and so we have to know what to do if something like that were to happen. Yeah. Um, one question that I got, and I'm so curious about this too, because I totally see the importance and the benefit of babies and children being allowed to explore the dirt and, you know, put it in their mouth and and play in it and all of this. but, We live in a world where most of our, if it's not right in our backyard, we don't have control over like pesticides and things like that, chemicals that are being Mm -hmm. used in the grass. So what do you think about that? Like, how do we navigate letting our children have the freedom to explore with also knowing that a lot of this, these um, grassy areas are treated with harsh chemicals?
1: Yeah, I think doing your research ahead of time and knowing if that area is treated, because that does change the game, you know, Mm -hmm. if they're putting chemicals and stuff in their body. And then you can, in your own environment at home, like, you know, obviously use alternatives so that, Mm -hmm. you know, if that's a priority for you. But I think that's a really good point to watch out for.
0: Yeah. So unfortunately it's just, you kind of have to know, you kind of have to do your own yeah. research and then create that yes area. Hopefully right. if you have the opportunity to do that at your own home. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we used to walk where we moved recently, but we had a high school down the street from our house and we would go on walks and they had the, this beautiful yard, lots of grass. And every time we walked past, they were spraying it with pesticides. And it was so frustrating to me because I'm not going to let my kid play in the grass when you're spraying it. Right. Um, okay, let's see. Let me look at some of these questions that people submitted. Um, there were lots that were just like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited for this one. I love her. Um, what do you think this is probably a longer topic, but maybe just summarized. What do you think the impacts of um, screen time are on our children, especially like screen time use in schools and um, educational programs and things like that?
1: Yeah. um, Yeah, that is a big one. Um, I think my biggest issue with it is that it's replacing outdoor playtime a lot Mm -hmm. for children. It's entertaining them. And so the twofold issue of that is they're not learning to come up with their own play ideas, Um, you know, so that creativity and, you know, um, having real like connection with other children, like they're literally with another child and playing and, and then um, moving the body, you know, um, engaging the senses, the muscles, all of that is not being done when you're on a screen. You're not, you're again, sedentary. You're not getting resistance to the joints and muscles, which is important Mm -hmm. for Um, you know, regulating those senses um, and developing them properly. So that's my, my biggest issue is that's replacing um, good old fashioned play that will actually create change to development in the body and senses.
0: Right. So it's again, a balance of, you know, It's not that screen time is all bad and that we can never have screen time, but what are we doing? What are our kids doing when they're not having screen time? And also just making sure that they're, they're not having too much screen time where they're not getting the opportunity to move and play outside and do all of this.
1: You know, like it just made me think of, um, all in moderation. Like it's, it's almost to me, I've always treated screen time as a treat, like once in a while, it's not Mm -hmm. something that my kids were ever felt entitled to have every day, It was Mm -hmm. like a treat as once in a while. And it reminds me of sweets. Like if you, all you did was eat sweets and you didn't leave time for, then you're not getting the nutrition you need if you're not um, having other food groups. So it's the same with, I feel like screens. like, it's, it can be good. It could be, but it can be very harmful when it's, you have too much of it. Exactly.
0: Well said. Okay. What do we do if our child does have to be in school or daycare and we have to work? How do we make sure that they're getting lots of unstructured outdoor play?
1: Yeah, so I think advocating for, like, approaching the, the school about it or the the child care um, yeah, about the benefits of outdoor play is really key. Um, I think at that age, they should be outdoors most of the day. So I would also search for um you know child care if you're if you're able to but search, try to search for ones that do advocate for that there's it's becoming more popular um for for that to be a focus nature-based mm-hmm. programs so i would first do that if that's in your power i would do that and then if it's not then i would advocate for it and show articles um you know a video um you know you could show my tedx it's just quick it gets mm-hmm. right to the point Um, And then I would also try to overcome, like, so my own children are in a private Catholic school and um, there's still, I wish they would, they're outside more, but there's only so much you can do as well. So what I do is when they get home, they're outside for a lot Mm -hmm. of the time. So trying to counteract that as well, as much as possible.
0: Mm -hmm. How do you give your kids a leash outside when your yard doesn't feel safe? So I- I so I, I know you talked earlier about the importance of letting them play alone, but what if that's just really not safe where you live?
1: Um, it depends. It, it really depends. So I think looking at what your options are. So for instance, I went to New York City to do a speaking engagement one time and um, the the lady um Was talking about, don't anyone ever tell you that there's no place for kids to play in New York City? She goes, We have these beautiful parks. And so, but it takes more effort. So, bring, Mm -hmm. but bringing your child to the park, I recommend um, meeting up with another family, like a, a couple, like at least once a week, so they get the socialization piece. And I, and even in the pandemic, like I really think it's important to have, um, What's happening right now is kids are being isolated from each other and separated to the point that they don't, they're not playing with other kids at all. And I think what they need more than ever is to play with others, to connect and heal through this collective trauma. So even if it's one other family that you agree to play with during this time um, and after, I think that's really important for that socialization and social emotion, all the stuff that you can't work on when you're playing alone. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's a really good way if you have a city, you meet at a park with another family and they get to play. Plus they also inspire each other. Um, children will be inspired by other children's play ideas and that's how they grow in creativity. So that's what I would suggest doing. The other thing is, you know, advocating in your community for children's rights. So we've, I've heard of cities shutting down streets to advocate for um, playtime. Um, there's also like I've heard of neighborhoods where they will knock door to door and say, in our, our neighborhood we want to allow our kids to play, and so are you okay with my kids knocking on the door to kind mm-hmm. of like bring it back a couple like yeah. twenty years where you would knock on other kids' doors to see if they wanted to play, and so that you'll see where the kids are based on where their bikes are but it it takes creating a a village again. And Mm -hmm. I think we've gotten away from that. We are all busy, we're all doing our own thing, but trying to create a village so that someone's constantly watching the
0: children is also another technique. I think that's great. Yeah, that's a great idea. Um, So we talked, well, we already talked about that, how to balance safety and free play. Do you have any other tips about that that we haven't already mentioned? Um, That was what most of the questions were about, kind of related to safety, balancing safety Mm -hmm. with that freedom.
1: Yeah. So reducing hazards, right. Hazards are things that the kid doesn't know it's coming, Mm -hmm. but allow for risk-taking. So if they want to climb up the slide and no other kids coming down, you know, like Mm -hmm. that's great. If they want to climb a tree and usually they can assess their own risk, that's really great. Um, If a kid is um, arguing having a little argument with another child, but they're being safe, and they're using the words like that wouldn't be a time where I would step in, I would allow them to practice their conflict resolution skills, we will go in um, and facilitate when, you know, um, when they're either really struggling, or like they get physical, um, or they, you know, need some help. But I think allowing more opportunities for them to solve their own problems is, is really important. We tend to always do it for them. And right. they're losing those skills. So.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, So what if you only have really in your neighborhood or nearby, you just have like playgrounds, like jungle, jungle gyms and like patches of grass. And you don't so much have like the woods and the lakes and like a lot of really like natural nature. Mm-hmm. Is that okay? Are jungle gyms like bad because they're not made in nature? Or is it okay for kids to use jungle gyms?
1: Oh, yeah they can definitely use jungle gyms. Okay. I feel like, I feel like there's um, almost a spectrum, like where it gets more and more therapeutic. Like when you're fully immersed in the woods or on the beach, like that's incredibly therapeutic. Often people will go there to relax and be organized and, but um, that's not always accessible all the time. And if you think about the way kids played back 40 years ago, like in New York city, they were on the streets playing, you know? So like, that's what they had. They still had plenty of opportunity to move. They still played games. They did, a, you know, a hopscotch and jump rope and they climbed, um, you know, they walked to the playground and that was their thing. I think we need to use what we have, but there is a spectrum of it, it gets more and more therapeutic the more you're mm-hmm. immersed in nature.
0: I like that. So it's not necessary. No outdoor play is like bad or wrong or harmful. (laughs) It just gets increasingly more like therapeutic and beneficial. I like that. Um, Okay. Hot summers make outdoor play almost impossible. How to work around that? Mm
1: -hmm. That's a really good question. I think um, if you bring them out earlier in the day, I think that's really important. A lot of our programs um, that are in the, the hotter climates, they'll run their program from nine to 12. And so then they go inside after that. Um, Having shade, adequate shade out too, um, Mm -hmm. is really important. I think water play, making sure that they get breaks from the sun and they have nice cool treats. Um, Hydration is is really key. Finding shaded areas, um, but yeah. I lived in South Carolina for a years, so I know I couldn't get yeah. really human.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's definitely rough in the Southern climates. Yeah. <laughs> um, we love being outside, but we want to avoid ticks. Any suggestions for that? So we do have
1: ticks here. And I actually, before I started Timberton, I used to be afraid of being outside because of ticks. I had mm-hmm. nightmares. So ironically mm-hmm. I had to overcome my fear to do this, but what we do is there's a couple things you can do. You can spray for ticks um naturally you can we had guinea fowl which eat they're like these chicken things um that eat the ticks like crazy so they actually cleared out all the ticks Mm -hmm. you can have like um use peppermint soap and peppermint shampoo so you can do some preventative things but the main thing we actually do now is just check so after we play um all the parents do a tick check and they just check the hair they check um the body as well. And if you can catch it right away, like you're usually good. It has the tick has to stand for like 24 hours. Yeah. So you just, that's how we do it. And we, I just decided I wouldn't let a bug get in the way of,
0: um, this outdoor play. Yeah. <laughs> And I Got think it. it's to this fear for me anyways, it's if the fear of ticks and like the fear of bugs in general, but getting more comfortable with that and just doing the regular tick checks and even yeah. having an experience of pulling a tick out and knowing how to do that and having like cool. a, a little tick kit set up, you know, that can really help to alleviate those fears once yeah. you start to experience it a little bit.
1: And and also for children to make sure not to make it a big deal, because if they Mm -hmm. If you talk about ticks too much, they get afraid and they don't want to go outside. So it's just like anything or getting a boo-boo, like not, you know, just really, um, reducing anxiety around that. So,
0: yeah, well, that brings up another question that I had. What about those kiddos that, um, do have some hesitancy to play outside, whether on their own or even with somebody else? And they really just have a hard time just getting in there and getting dirty. What do you have any suggestions for that?
1: Um, so just exposure and practice is the key. So they just need to be exposed over and over and it needs to become part of their daily life. And then they uh, start to overcome the fears.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When you start a baby, that's why I said it's so important for babies outside. If a baby is g- grows up being outdoors, it's usually not an issue because they're constantly, it's right from the beginning, it's a natural part of their environment. So um, for instance, like you know, tolerating, like when you're crawling on grass, for instance, like, again, you're integrating those new senses. And you're not thinking about it much. But if you I've seen people take a three year old and be like, all of a sudden, just place them on the grass. And they if they haven't had exposure, that can be very aversive. So I think the first thing you want to do is if you are able to bring your babies out. So that's, you know, if your child's older, you have to um, make everything a choice like you I for over here, I never even suggest kids go barefoot because often when they have sensory issues, there's anxiety tied to that. So even just saying, why don't you try taking your shoes off can actually rise anxiety level. So we, the what happens in this program is other children a lot of children will choose to take their shoes off and they will, they will observe that. Mm-hmm. And so they realize it's a choice. Um, we've have kids go in the mud puddles with shoes on and we don't say anything. So just everything is not a big deal. Um, we had one little boy go in with um, welly boots right into the mm-hmm. mud puddle because he wanted to catch the frogs. So again, that play can often trump fear. That was so motivating to him. He went right in. The mud went in his um, boots, which feels gross. And he came out and um, he took him off and went back in barefoot. That kid actually had um, been working on going barefoot for two years in a clinic setting. Unsuccessful, but because the play was so motivating it and it was a choice. I didn't, Mm -hmm. he asked, he goes, I'll go to those mud pills, but I'm not taking these off. (laughs) And so I said, okay. So because it was a choice, he went in on his own.
0: Oh, I love that. And like you said, modeling too is really helpful. Like my daughter, um, would not go barefoot in the grass, like when she was one and two and I would go outside barefoot a lot. And then she finally, now she loves being barefoot at three, almost four years old. So, and I, it's like you said, it's really important to not make it a big deal and to not pressure them because that can actually just make things worse and make them more likely to to not do it. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yep. I guess I wanted to end with, you know, just keeping it simple. Um, I suggest going out with your children in the beginning and keep yourself busy, like rake or shovel, Um, sit outside, read a book knit, but uh, be out there so they feel comfortable being outside. And I suggest putting some items out there that they can play with um, that that inspire creativity, such as, um, you know, curtains, old curtains, old sheets are really fun for fort building or dress up. Mm -hmm. um, you know, planks and, um, baskets with nothing in them, um, old kitchen sets, kitchenware, um, you know, and putting some mud out there, like all of that will inspire all sorts of play.
0: Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Angela. This was so informative. Can you quickly just tell us where we can find your work and Timber Nook and all of that?
1: Sure. So you can find us at timbernook.com and you can um, also find us on Facebook. I do post a lot of research and um, the neuroscience behind what's happening on the Facebook page. So that's a really good place to kind of keep tabs on what's
0: going on with child development and outdoor play. Awesome. And I will link that in the uh, the podcast description so you can find it. Thank you so much, Angela. Thank you.